Hello good people of Europe, so today I'm interviewing CMM on well effectively how to hack your career, how to really understand how promotions work, how do you progress and how do you do this yourself. Uh, CMM has had an amazing and actually pretty interesting career himself and yeah, this conversation for me as somebody with 3-4 years work experience in the workforce getting started and it's just really learning about the tactics and the strategies he applied. It's interesting, it's fascinating. I hope you will get some value out of this. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Financial Independence Europe podcast, where we interview people from all 44 European countries, all of them, about optimizing your life, geo-arbitrage, and making the most of your money. This was your hosts, Alvar, Erminta, and Matthias. Welcome, everybody. Welcome back again to another episode of the Financial Independence Europe podcast. So today we've actually got something pretty awesome going on. We got our first French guest coming up. Hi, Mark. Hi, how are you? Great, Mark. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. It's really great to finally be able to cover France. And the special topic of this episode is going to be career advancement and how to get promoted through your career, the mechanics behind it and kind of how to process it. And Mark, I've read quite a few of your articles and you seem have done quite well for yourself. Anyway, to get started. Could you tell the audience a little bit about yourself, where you're from, what you're doing, uh, your background story? Yeah, sure. So I'm uh, living in Paris in a little apartment uh, with my family right next to the Eiffel Tower. And I uh, started my career in an audit firm, Ernst & Young, uh, where I worked really getting to know a broad spectrum of, uh, of a lot of different companies and a lot of industries, which I think was a a really good start in my career because it really opened me and exposed me to a lot of different ways of working, things that worked really well. And I think I saw a lot of companies that did really well. And then a lot of companies that didn't really do very well either. And I was able to pinpoint a lot of the kind of internal inertia that you find in companies, especially when people tend to do things that they've always done and just kind of repeat tasks over and over again without really thinking uh, how they've been doing things. And then, you know, after about five years in uh, external audit, I moved into a big media entertainment company uh, where I got to know the workings of the media industry very, very closely, as well as the, the music industry and pay television. And then I moved into a, another entertainment company. And that's, I think, when my career really started firing on all cylinders. And I had a, an objective getting into that company uh, to be the chief financial officer in, in five years after arriving at the company. And five years and a month later, they promoted me into the chief financial officer role. It was a listed company. And I stayed in that company for about uh, six years. And I'm now in another, in another company, uh, also a listed company in France. And I've been doing uh, my current role for about two years now. Okay, wow. And your blog is also called the Chief Money Man, and I believe also related to the name of your role, correct, right? Yes, yes. I'm the Chief Financial Officer. So instead of writing, uh, you know, chieffinancialofficer.com, I think that was taken. Um, I played around with, with a few things. In the beginning, the website was called Confessions of a CFO. And I think that's how it primarily started. There's a bit of a more of a focus of the role of a Chief Financial Officer, you know, what you do on a daily basis, how to become a, a CFO. And then as I started you know, progressing a little bit, I realized that the, the name Confessions of a CFO was a little bit too narrow. And that's when I changed it to uh, Chief Money Man about, um, about, I want to say, three or four months ago, actually. The, blog's, the blog hasn't been around for a long time. It's only been around for about six or seven months now. And the change in the name really enabled me to start doing a lot more articles on financial independence, you know, how to get wealthy, how to make more money. 
I've got a lot of things that I'm still thinking about uh, that might be a little bit more European focused because I've actually had quite a lot of readers ask me to write more uh, with a European focus. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm looking at uh, different investments and, and investment vehicles that you might find in Europe. And that's uh, going to be a series that's going to be coming up in a couple of months time. Nice. I've been following your blog myself for the last months and I love your articles. And also to ask, like, how did you originally came in touch with financial independence? What was your uh, moment of like, hey, there is a different way of approaching life? <laughs> I think like a lot of people, it was Mr. Money Mustache uh, that I came across first. I think the question I typed into the, to the to Google was something along the lines of how much money do you need to retire? And I'd always had a number in mind. Probably, I think the first time I got a number in my head was about 10 to 12 years ago when I started looking at my expenses and I started looking at my style of living. I quickly calculated kind of back of the envelope what I needed at a present value point of view to be able to stop working so that my investments would pay for my lifestyle. And so I was kind of diligently working to that, but I never really knew if I think anyone else was thinking about this. And so typing into uh, typing into Google, you know, how much to retire on, I think I came across the Mr. Money Mustache 4% rule, one of his posts that was quite famous and, and I think drove a lot of traffic to his site. And that's how I got me interested as I was reading through his blog. And then I came across uh, financialsamurai.com as well. And those were the two together that really got me more interested in the subject and then actually drove me really looking at um, at Sam's site, Financial Samurai, drove me to actually then start a blog myself and start talking about what, what I've been doing. Nice. Also, really would second uh, Financial Samurai as a blog. Also, one of the first blogs I started to read myself and the Matt Fiantes. And to kind of like piggyback on that one, are you already financially independent at the moment? I was a few years ago. I hit the number that I wanted to hit. And then we were living just outside of my wife, just outside of Paris. And we wanted to move uh, move into Paris to actually put our kids in a bilingual education. So speaking English and French. I sold a house that was almost paid off. I think the mortgage was, was next to nothing and took on a whole lot more debt and raised, unfortunately, my lifestyle to get my kids into a bilingual school. And that pushed my number up a little bit higher. And now I think I re-hit the number, this higher number that I need to, to retire. I think I might hit it in the next year or so, but I don't think I'm actually ready to retire yet from, at least from working. I think I'm having too much fun. I think I'll give it a few more years to then decide what I want to do. Good answer to having too much fun with work is definitely a good one. <laughs> but I found it pretty interesting going from like, okay, hey, I've got my number, I'm reaching it and actually through life development going back and obviously, you know, you're making the choice to give having or allowing your kids to go into a bilingual school. And obviously that's a really good and obvious choice to make. And what I'm wondering as well, like, how do you invest your money? What's kind of your approach? Are you a typical ETF uh, man or is there a more alternative approach going on as well? Yes, yeah, so I started with real estate about 18, 19 years ago. Um, so I'm in my mid 40s now. Uh, and I think quite soon after getting into the working environment, I decided that one way to build investments was to let other people pay for them for me. And I thought real estate at the time was quite a good bet, especially because I was buying real estate to to rent out. And it also coincided with uh, what I saw at the time, which was lacking, especially in Paris, was furnished rentals for people coming from other parts of the world. And so I invested in a few small apartments at the time, which 
quickly started paying for themselves thanks to you know a lot of work around getting tenants and and making them happy and selling them extra services such as cleaning and and the like and then i think once i got quite settled in in those investments then i started investing directly in in the stock market which i think early in my career i did quite a lot of because i was uh, i'm also a chartered financial analyst and so there were a lot of investments in the stock market that I was doing directly because I knew very well and, and had studied how to analyze investments and analyze companies. So at the moment, I do a, a bit of both. I have some money that I placed with a, an investment advisor that manages a kind of sleeping money. And then I have a portfolio that's quite active that I'm actively looking at on a regular basis. And then I have a fair amount of uh, new property develops that I've done. I think every time I got to a point where my property was kicking out uh, an interesting revenue, I would then reinvest that revenue into buying something else. Nice approach. That's really different than most people in the FI community uh, who religiously stick to their ETF investments and anything that's semi-risky, don't go for it. But obviously, if you stick to the basics or to what everybody else is doing, you'll never ever become truly rich or more successful than others. So you started out with real estate from that morphed into stock picking as well. Okay. And and when you say companies you knew really, really well, was this where these companies you had professional relations with and because of that reason, you were comfortable enough like stock picking and really investing in them? Or was it like, how did you know these companies were worth investing and would give you a good return more than an ETF? No, I think a lot of it was down to just analyzing fundamentals. So I used to do a lot of work, and I still do, looking at broker reports, uh, looking at financial statements of the companies, trying to understand their business model. And again, because I have quite an important education around that, and because I work in finance, being the chief financial officer, I'm often looking at investments on behalf of the company and trying to figure out if those investments will meet our, our internal hurdle rates, what kind of risk profile they have. What are their long-term prospects? I suppose because I'm working in that quite a lot, stock picking comes a little bit more naturally to me. And as well, I have an approach, and I think the real estate investment really showed me that that can work, which is really a long-term vision. So when I buy things, it's not to buy a stock and then to sell it in three months' time or six months' time, even two years' time. I'm really looking to hold stock like I do my uh, real estate investments for a 10-year horizon at minimum. So that when you're doing things like that, you know you, you tend to ignore the the ups and downs of the stock market. You tend to lock in for a much longer time, and so far it's proved, um, you know, over the last two decades, quite um, quite beneficial. Nice. Would you consider yourself a value investor in that case? Uh, for the most part, but you know there are times where I look at uh, some of the growth stocks. You know, I stayed out of the first dot com bubble uh, way back when. Uh, I've seen a lot of stocks at the moment that are riding up on ridiculous multiples. I think there was a, a Lyft just listed the other day with a multiple with a valuation up in the billions for a company that hasn't made any money. Those are the kind of things I would stay away from at the at the moment. But you know, if it's a good growth story and you do see some solid fundamentals and it's really around the the, the business model, and that's you know, there's not always a lot of a lot of hard data that you can hold on to and look at. I tend to follow follow my gut sometimes, uh, which is what I do in my job as well. I think a lot of it comes down to some subjective elements that you analyze and look at. And again, so far, it's been it's been really beneficial for me. Thank you so much for that. I find it really interesting always to hear different approaches towards investing, because if we all stick to ETFs and get our 7% return, which on paper is 7%, as most people think, based on historical returns, 
But I personally view based on the fundamentals I'm reading at the moment that a 35 uh, to 4% return over the next 10 years is a lot more likely than, than the 7% we're working with in our calculations. I think a lot of people are way too optimistic about the returns they're expecting from ETFs. And yeah, it would be good for more people to reach and also to consider alternative approaches. And then kind of to jump over from there into the main topic of this episode, career advancement and how to get promoted. So Mark, I've read a couple of your articles and you earlier explained you've made some big moves in terms of career, in terms of progression. Can you give our listeners an explanation roughly like how does getting promoted work? Why does a company promote people? Yeah, I think that, you know, there's some basic fundamentals, obviously, you know, you need to be doing your job well. I think that's a basic um, companies are never going to promote people uh, that are underperforming. And so, you know, whatever, whatever job you have, my advice would always be make sure that you you're doing that job to the best of your abilities. But again, that by itself is not what's going to get you promoted. That's just a base that I think you need to have companies. And, and sometimes we might like to think that are not are not perfect animals. They don't have systems set up where they identify the top performers. And because companies are run by people, people have emotions and that you know takes away some of the rationality sometimes. We tend to favor people that are a little bit like us. We tend to be around our friends or people that you know share our interests. And companies are the same and getting promoted has a lot to do with that as well. So not just doing your job well, but also making sure that you fit into the company culture. And this is something that I always paid a lot of attention to as I was moving between companies, because you always know what you're leaving. You never know what you're what you're getting into. Uh, but getting a good handle on the corporate culture is important because you need to be able to fit and be seen like you fit. And so once you get into a corporate culture where you know you're seen as one of the people in the company, um, you're doing your job well. I think another step that you need to do and need to focus on is communicating what you do, because a lot of people tend to that I've come across in my career tend to do their job well but then don't really talk about it and, and expect somehow magically that other people in the company will notice what they're doing and will promote them or, or give them a, a raise. Uh, and unfortunately, in companies, it doesn't work like that. I don't think I've ever seen it in my career, someone who's you know, diligently done their job, not talked about it, and then you know, received a promotion or got an exceptional salary increase. I think communicating what you do is, is really important. Communicating is, is, you know, telling the leaders in the organization, talking about it. It's not bragging, but it's finding those opportunities where you can communicate what you've done and you can communicate on, on how you've made things better, how you've made things more efficient, how you've, uh, you know, launched new projects or, or whatever it is that you might be doing and pass that message to the people that will eventually decide. And it, and it doesn't mean that by communicating something you're doing well now means you're going to get a promotion right away. You know, sometimes it can take a number of years. But you've got to you've got to consistently do that because the more you do that, the more people are going to realize that okay, this person in front of me is you know doing a great job and uh, is some person that I can consider to to promote. But then still, even doing all of that doesn't push you to the next level. You know, you need to be able to identify in a company who are the people that are going to be deciding who gets the next promotion. And it's not always your immediate supervisor or your boss. Often it's someone who could be a couple of levels up. Sometimes in some companies, it's human resources that plays that role. In other companies, it might be a, a line leader. In other companies, it's kind of the general management. And you, so you have to really get a handle on all of those different aspects and be speaking to all of those people, or at least 
networking with them and finding opportunities to do that. And those are the kind of things you can start doing to, to put your chances more on your side. And then I would add to one other thing that I've always done consistently in my career and I think has really helped me and it helped me move up to when I became the, the CFO of my first listed company that I was working with. I moved up three levels in, in five years to get that role was always behaving like the supervisors above me. I found that every strata of uh, management has a different code. It might be the way they dress. It might be the way they walk into a meeting. It might be what they take into a meeting. It might be how they sign, sign off their emails. There's little codes that you can look for and try and identify that your managers are doing. And once you can start replicating it subtly, you know, it might even be the fact that you know, the management level above you might be wearing uh, jackets to work, or they might be wearing black shoes instead of sneakers, just little arbitrary things like that. And when you start mimicking that, I found it quite powerful because people, when they look at you, they might even sometimes unconsciously think that you're in the level above or the level that you're, you're aspiring to. And that actually happened to me once or twice in my career, where I was once uh, at a meeting with a whole lot of vice presidents. And um, the CEO of the company said, look, I want everyone who's not vice president to leave the meeting. And I got up to leave and two people who were vice presidents turned to me and said, Mark, hang on, you're not a vice president? I thought you were a vice president. Quite shortly after that, I was promoted. But I think it shows that paying attention to those kind of unwritten codes uh, can really be beneficial in, in aiming for a promotion. I find mainly your last point extremely interesting. I think lots of people within the financial independence movement are good in their careers. They're good professionals, but it doesn't necessarily make them good communicators or good promoters of their own work, their own value communicating what they're bringing towards the company. And the last point you brought forward, like, how do you even go beyond that? Like being good at your job, communicating, but finding those small little signs and elements within company cultures. And actually making them your own, that's, I've honestly never heard it before, like explained. That's seriously interesting. Um, what I'm wondering, do you consider it vital to change companies to be able to advance like you've done yourself or to advance really, really well within careers? Do you have to change jobs often for that? Look, I've changed. I stayed with, um, I changed into my new company probably about a year and a half ago. And the company before that, I was with them for for just over a decade. So I didn't change too much in my prior company, but I, I did get a promotion probably every, on average, every year and a half. And even when I um, finally made it to the, to the chief financial officer role, I was continually given new responsibilities throughout my six years as the chief financial officer. The reason I changed was that I, I just started getting bored with what I was doing. I think I'd, I'd been around the role a number of times and I felt that I'd stopped learning and, and stopped challenging myself. So I wanted to get a something a little bit more difficult and a little bit more challenging. And that's why I decided to move. I think it really, to answer your question, it really depends on the company you're in and, and the fit that you have with the culture. And again, whether there are opportunities. You know, when I joined my prior company, my goal was to be the chief financial officer in five years. And everything I was doing was always with that goal in mind. I'm very goal driven. So I think it, it worked very well for me. And then I put into practice kind of some of the things that I've told you about. And I was also very, very good with my teams. You know, I made sure that my team was happy and functioning. I was trying not to make enemies around the company. And, and, and I was in a culture that just worked very well for me. 
I think if you're in a culture that's not working well for you, or if there, you don't see opportunities or people aren't moving in the company, you know, then I think that's a point you need to kind of look around and say, is this the right company for me, depending on the goals that I have. You know, time does go very quickly. And the longer we push our goals out, the longer it's going to take to reach them. You know, for me, it was very, as I said, I wanted to be the CFO in five years. I got there in five years and a month. I think if I hadn't have, I would have probably started looking around to, to, to achieve my goal. So I think sometimes it is useful to move around. So Matthias, have you ever talked about dividend stocks, Estonian companies, or how frugal you are on a first dates or with one of your colleagues? I tried it once with a colleague and he said, dividend what? Aha, uh-huh. do you know, I actually have a retreat that covers this all. Oh, tell me more. So this retreat, it's all about workshops and talks together with like-minded folks who share their knowledge with you. Oh, sounds awesome. Do you have also barbecue, yoga and surfing? And are we able to have a glass of wine? Actually, yes, we do. That's all together combined in Portugal. But the most important question of the day, when is this actually? Will it be in 2019? It's actually in 2019 at 24th of May to 27th at Agave in Portugal, near the ocean. And we have also a pool for people who don't like nature. That actually sounds pretty good. And then where do I find this? Head over to financial-independence.eu slash retreat. That's R-E-T-R-E-A-T. So... Yeah, winter's shit. Looking forward to it. The reason why I was also asking is that many millennials, early 30-ish listeners slash people in their careers, they really tend to switch jobs often every three, four years seems to be the average. Now, um, in my case, my parents, they tended to stick to their jobs for like 40, 50 years. Uh, the generation before me, I'm 26 myself, tended to still like a pretty decent period but for my own generation and definitely my own sector it people tend to really switch jobs often and a moment a better offer comes along they jump ship hey 20 percent salary is i'm going for it but it can also be a real value in actually sticking to a company what i'm personally seeing a lot is that a lot of companies they're really seeing so many people leaving in terms of turnover and they're really investing in actually keeping their employees making them competitive offers and creating environments that work and it can be worth sticking along for quite a while on that one as well and so this is then obviously the way you progress yourself through your career and i find it pretty remarkable how you've done that well done yeah you know it wasn't it's not to say as well that i wasn't sometimes looking outside because knowing your worth sometimes means you you need to look outside and so at various points in my career i have considered moving out because I always felt that if I wanted to negotiate, if I wanted to get a salary increase, um, if I wanted to be considered for that next promotion, sometimes you do need a little bit of leverage and having a viable plan B, so something that you would take if pushed to is is important. And that's kind of part of a good negotiation tactic. Sometimes I find that jumping out of a company, you know, after a year and a half or, or three years is, is sometimes a little bit soon. I think three years, maybe I find it takes you about a Moving into a new role, about a year and a half to get your head around the role, and then probably another six to 12 months to master the role. You know, that's the time to, to then move either upwards or, or potentially out if you've got another opportunity. But again, it's one thing that's key is, is finding the right corporate culture and jumping, you know, too soon sometimes might be hard to find that right corporate culture that you're really going to, you know, slingshot your career up to the top. Because at the end of the day, 
where you really want to make the big money is is in the C-suite. And so getting into the C-suite of a company, a private company, or, or even better, a listed company, that's where you know you can make pretty serious money. And if that's your goal, that's the path you need to choose. So jumping too often in a company might sometimes as well hinder your ability to get up to those roles. And then also to ask, would you have done this kind of job for a lower salary? What drives you? You've said you've, you're really goal-oriented. Would you have done this for half the salary as well? No, Well, that's a hard question to ask, uh, answer because I enjoy what I do. But I've also been very, again, focused on the financials side of it and making sure that I'm rewarded fairly for what I do. And so I think money has been an important factor in my life. And, you know, as you're on a road to financial independence, I think it was always in the back of my mind that the more long-term incentives I could get for stock awards or, or the more variable bonuses, that's where, that's where the big money is. You know, when you're, when you're trying to get rich on a salary, or trying to get independently wealthy, it's it's obviously about investments and it's obviously about saving. Um, you know, the less you spend, the more of your salary you're going to be able to put away. But the higher up you get in a in an organisation, that's where other types of rewards start coming. So there's obviously the variable bonus, and then the even bigger component is the long-term incentive plans, where you get uh, corporate or company stock, and that's where in a career kind of environment where the real money is. Yes, and many people who want to become financially independent, they don't tend to have the 100k, 200k plus salaries within Europe. And that's obviously, it is really great that you managed to do it. But I think for lots of our listeners, it will be pretty hard to get to the same levels of company accomplishment and career advancement. But I'm also curious about, so you're doing this in France. Have you always been working just in France? No, I worked in South Africa for a few years as well which is a, a great a great experience. It's a different culture. And uh, I think that taught me quite a, quite a lot as well about kind of navigating global companies. I wanted to come back just on what you said previously, because I think what's important though is, is, yes, I've had this career, but I did stop when I was 27 years old. And effectively, that was my first retirement, even though I didn't even realize I was retiring at the time. I'd made a little bit of money, not, not a lot. I think I was probably around the maybe 100,000 euros that I'd been able to save and, and through some targeted stock picking investments. And I wanted to write a novel. And so I resigned from my, from my job. I worked as a little waiter in a, in a bar in the center of Paris. I uh, wasn't making any money. I worked my own hours, so the hours I wanted to work. So I wasn't beholden by a salary per se because I had this little investment fund of 100,000 euros. And that actually enabled, you know, that money paid for my rent and largely sustained me. I worked in the bar just because it was fun and it got me a little bit of extra spending money, but I didn't really financially need to do that. Again, it's about choosing the, the amount of money you want to live on. I, at the time when I was 27 stopped, then I decided that, I, you know, writing a novel was one thing and it was a lot of fun, but I really enjoyed the corporate environment. So after a year, I went back into it. And then, you know, obviously you set your sights on higher and higher amounts of money for the certain lifestyle that you choose. You know, if, if I look at the lifestyle of a Mr. Money Mustache, that's fine. I could do that um, a number of times on the, the wealth that I've built up over my life. But it's all about, do you one, do you want to stop? And then two, what's the kind of lifestyle that you'd like to have when you do stop? Okay, that's amazing. As a 27-year-old in Europe, amassing, or amassing 100,000 euro through stock investments in the US it can often be pretty easy to earn that kind of money but 
doing that in Europe is tough. Wow. And uh, did you actually finish a novel? I did. Yeah, I did. I did. But I never got it published. Uh, it was a few publishing houses had a look at it. They, they all enjoyed it from what they said to me, but no one wanted to take it through to being published, which I think actually was good for me because I think if I'd, if I'd published the novel then, I probably would have never got back into the corporate environment and had the, the amount of fun that I've had over the last decade. I would have probably uh, you know, tried to ply away being, a, being an author. And I think I had probably one book in me, and I, w- I, I don't think I would have had two. So I think it would have been a disaster. Okay, now, but regardless, you tried it, you gave it a shot, and you learned something. Yeah. And then kind of like the, the next question on this one is, so for a listener, say somebody's kind of like starting out in their careers, they're 23, 24, graduated from uni, couple years of experience. How would you recommend them going from kind of like starting out with a career to really developing themselves and maybe not necessarily becoming CEOs or like through like the highest levels of the company, but just like, how would you recommend in general, how should somebody approach the advancement of their career? I think the first thing I would say is have a goal be it a a three-year or a five-year goal. And when I talk about goal, it's where do you want to be? It's a question I ask people all the time. And you'd be amazed the amount of people that say, I have no idea. I I would like to just do a good job. And the analogy that I always use with them is that when you get into a car in the morning or you get onto the metro or you get on a bus, however you get to work, you know where you're going. You have a destination in mind. If you didn't know where you were going, you would get on a bus or get on the metro or get in your car and just go around in circles. And so a career needs to be managed like any other journey in life. You need to know where you're going. It doesn't always need to be, you know, fixated on it. I, I've been fortunate in my career that I think from a, from a fairly early stage, I kind of knew what I wanted to do, but it, it did change a number of times before I settled on you know, the chief financial officer of a listed company. But having those goals enabled me to work towards them. So at one point I wanted to you know, do one thing and I was, I was working diligently toward that. And progressing in my career towards that, it was it was in the financial sector until I decided that I no longer wanted to do that. But it it, it still enabled me to you know get promoted and to, to have um, raises because I was very focused on doing the right things to get to that next job. And I think starting a career, you need to be able to do that. You need to have those objectives in mind. And then the th- second thing is something I said a little bit earlier. You need to do your job well. You need to show up in the morning. And you need to you know, fulfill the objectives that you're given and hopefully exceed them, but really concentrate on, in the short term, doing things really well, while at the same time, looking up and seeing that goal in mind and trying to understand what's going to get you closer to that goal and the things that you need to do to move to that position. And again, you know, you want to be playing it in a three to five year rolling basis all the time. You don't need to look out and say, okay, you know, by the time I'm you know, 40 or 50, which might seem like a, a complete lifetime in such a long period that I want to be at this place. I think that's way too long. You do need to rather look at some more short-term objectives. And every time you realize them, again, they might be different to what you set out to do in the beginning. You then set your next one and your next one. And that kind of guides you. And with that clarity of direction, I find you go a lot quicker and it's a lot easier. How do you go along like organizing this? Because when I'm hearing this explanation from you, I'm 26 myself, I'm four years into my career. I find this extremely hard to be so disciplined and goal-oriented to organize things like that. Have you had like great mentors yourself or have you done just truly through like strong planning? No, I think, I think it's yeah, strong planning. I was, a, I was a big sportsman when I was growing up and, and you know, when you're playing a game, you're playing a game to win. So that's an, an objective. In a tennis game, which might not last that long, you have a goal in mind. And 
when you want to win a tennis game versus when you go into the game thinking, I'm just going to have a good game, your performance changes quite significantly. And I think that showed me that having something to focus on in a career or on the sports field and is so powerful. Think about, I don't know if you run, but think about going for a run, right? You could be thinking about you know, your first few kilometers and just focusing on your footsteps or focusing on the music you're listening to. But if you're not going out to run to you know, run those five or 10 kilometers, at some point you're going to get a bit tired and you're going to, okay, I've done enough and you're going to stop. When you're focused on, I want to run 10 kilometers and I have a route that's mapped out to get me through my 10 kilometers, you're more than likely going to finish it. Uh, it might be hard. There might be periods where you want to stop. But because you have a goal in mind, you're going to keep going for it. And a career is exactly the same. You know, an, an easy way, if, if it's hard to project, is to look at the role that's above you and to say, okay, my supervisor has this role or my manager. These are the things that they do that I don't do. How can I get good at the things they don't do? And how can I you know, behave that I'm in that role and, and try and acquire those extra things to get to that next role? So when the promotion comes up, you're the one that they're going to go after. So it could just be you know, in a year or two years, I want to be in my supervisor's role. Um, it could be, again, a couple of levels up. And, and those are the easiest to do because it's just kind of vertically upwards, if you will. But you've also got to kind of link that to, am I going to enjoy doing that? Because that's an important part as well. And will this role also fulfill me? There's obviously the financial side which comes with it. But you do also need to do a little bit of work on yourself, understanding you know, what makes you happy in a, in, a, in a particular job. And then try and find jobs that are aligned to that. That's something I did coming right out of, out of school. Um, my parents got me to do that, which is kind of a fit. I don't know what it, what it was called at the time, but I, had a, I filled out a number of tests and did a whole lot of things as to what would I be good at and what roles would, I, would best fit me and my personality. And that's what got me to go into study finance and accounting and, and kind of got me to where I am today because the role that I chose in the path was just one of many. It wasn't the only one that was given to me, it was, but it was the one that I think somewhere inside me excited me the most. Um, and so that's what I followed. Okay, I found it extremely interesting that, you know, you managed this yourself. Like, have you ever had like great mentors or anybody who like really helped you out, like getting into like a certain company or role? No, I haven't. I've always looked for mentors. I know I have I have friends and I have colleagues that have had mentors. You know, I think I'm probably not the best networker. Um, I try and do it because I know it's important, but I know it's also something that that is not the top of my skill list. And I think I've just had a hard time finding a, finding a mentor. And then I find that you know when I was I first became the chief financial officer of the, my first listed company when I was 37 years old. I was the youngest ever chief financial officer in the company. And I got there without really a mentor. So I think for me, it didn't really, it hasn't really been a hindrance or it didn't really make a difference. But I think if you can find someone who, who has more experience and can help you be that sounding board, I think it's super, super interesting. Okay, Mark, this is, I think, really great advice in general, even if you're not at the start of your career at 35, thinking about making a career shift, just this, in general, the way you approach things, the mindset behind it, and obviously understanding the price you're going to pay for working really hard, having to put in the hours, getting the job done, but the reward in the end that comes with that. So with this topic kind of like closing up like for the last part of the episode, I would really like to cover uh, financial independence in France because, to my knowledge, this has never been covered before on a podcast anywhere in the world because France is kind of notorious uh, in the sense of 
people find it hard to invest money in France to work there, really high taxes, regardless if it's true or not. That's kind of the stereotypes that many people within the financial independence movement see around France. Are they true? Yeah, no, they're definitely true. Um, you know, of your of your salary every month, twenty percent goes to the government, which is under you know social charges. So there's obviously some money for unemployment. There's some money for pension and retirement. But then there's a whole lot of other elements that the government just uses as a kind of way to tax you. And then you know, tax rates, the highest marginal tax rate is is uh, 45%. So you think about 45% plus 20, you're at 65%. Uh, then you have uh, VAT, which is at just under 20%. And then there's property taxes, there's habitation taxes, they call it. And there's all lots of other little things that you end up paying. The the fiscal pressure in France is is yes definitely dramatic. But what are the positive sides? Because there must be a reason besides being French, you're working in France. If you could have earned far more slash uh, pay less taxes in the US or Germany, for example. So in France, there's a, a lot of good things that go with that. Um, in that, I know that fifty percent of my ending salary, whatever I end at when I do retire or when I have the ability to retire in France the government will cover that for the rest of my life. So that is a, a, a fair bit of money that, you know, the, the French state is is guaranteeing. Then you don't pay any medical costs in France. You know, if I go to the doctor or I take my kids to the doctor, we don't pay anything. And it could be, you know, I touch wood that this would never happen, but if someone in France gets cancer, the medical system covers all of that. Whereas I know in countries like the United States, that can bankrupt a person. Whereas here in France, you don't pay any money. So there, there are some benefits to that. The, the last benefit is if you do lose your job, 70% of your salary uh, up until I think that the maximum you can get is close to 8,000 euros a month equivalent is paid out as, as unemployment money for two years. Think about emergency funds. Emergency funds in France, even though I have one and I've built one up, you don't really need one. Because if you ever lost your job, you have a guaranteed 70, 80% of your salary for the next two years. So whereas you do pay a lot of money, there are you know, some quite significant benefits of living in France as well. Yes, and in the end, those benefits can also make the actual butterfly easier slash when you're there managing it. Because obviously it's amazing in the US to earn a 200k salary. But if you either go bankrupt or you have to work 60 hours a week to actually get there or 70, 80, whatever, work like crazy and have 14 days holiday a week. That doesn't go together with a good quality lifestyle on the long term. So it is good to hear some positive sides from France because it's not just all, hey, no dividend tax or uh, tax advantage accounts. That's actually a good last question. In terms of pension system, you've covered that the French state will cover a pretty nice chunk of your last final salary. Um, does France have any like good tax advantage accounts for you to save pre-tax in? Um, no, they don't have. They don't have much in terms of tax-free uh, tax-free accounts, but um, they do have some interesting tax investments um, that are that are open to uh, to the public. You've got to really go out and look for them because they don't advertise them. But there are some significant real estate investments actually that can wipe out your you know, your annual income tax for the next three to five years. And for somebody pursuing financial independence in France, if you would have to give like them a quick, simple uh, advice approach, what would you say, work and save or go a different way? 
No, work, work and save definitely and focus on, again, longer term investments because that's what works in France. There is obviously investing in the stock market, but there are a lot of taxes around that as well. And that's maybe what pushed me to real estate, in fact, uh, early on, uh, because real estate can be quite a good uh, tax-free investment if you know how to do it correctly. Okay, that's good to hear. And also, financial independence can be done in France, and uh, there's more than just Switzerland, the UK, and Germany. I personally have never looked into moving to France. Actually, well, I have looked into Paris, but it's just good to hear that there are more approaches than just, hey, save up a bunch of money, withdraw 4%, and leave it at that. So, Mark, thank you so much for the answer. And I would like to throw our last final standard questions um, at you for the episode. Um, are you ready for it? Yes, go for it. Great. So, Mark, first of all, where can people find you in terms of blog, podcast? How can they contact you? Yeah, so they can find me at uh, www.chiefmoneyman.com. Great. So they can get in touch with you via that way. And if the, uh, what is one resource not well known you would recommend to others? In terms of book, podcast, blog, news article, what is the one thing you would recommend? And please read, listen, watch this. Well, definitely your podcast is one that I would recommend. Um, and I think we talked about it. it. It is well known, but I think you know Financial Samurai is a is a great resource. There's a lot of good history that that Sam's been writing for a, for a good number of years. So don't stop on the first page. Uh, get back uh, into into some of the the historical elements. Um, there's a lot of good reading on that website. Absolutely. And I, I really find his analytical approach and the way he engineered his own resignation package really interesting. I would also definitely recommend, please check out Financial Samurai. We'll add the link to the show notes if you can't find the link. And the last question of today, uh, the number one actionable tip for somebody on the path to FI. What is the one thing you would tell people, please do this. It's the most effective thing you're ever going to do in your life for, towards financial independence. Save more money. Spend less. <laughs> Easy, simple, and effective. Exactly. Great. Mark, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. We hope you learned something new and enjoyed the show. You can support us by doing this. Subscribing through your favorite podcast program and leaving us a review. Following us on Instagram and Twitter at Financial Independence Europe. Sending us an email with questions and feedback. We would love to hear from you. All the mentioned articles, books, and cool resources can be found in the show notes at financial-independence.eu. Thank you for listening and see you next time.